0: If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to 75% on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for 24 hours. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open. Quite a lot of the time I spend working on antiquarianism in the Romantic period And when Mary Kay asked me if I'd like to do a lecture, before I had a chance to say yes or no, she said, and we don't want antiquarianism. (laughs) Um, So antiquarianism is one of the things this isn't about. Um, It's not exactly about clothes either, and it's certainly not about fashion. What it is about is women and clothes, and something that happens between them, which I think one might think of as a kind of third rail of female experience. Um, And i thought about this a lot over the years, but my thoughts were focused when I saw... I went with a friend from the LRB, actually, to see Isabelle Huppert in Paul Verhoeven's 2016 film, L. That film, if you haven't seen it, begins with a rape about which... a violent rape about which the victim, Huppert, is ambivalent. And this fact, of course, sent critics, particularly male critics, scuttling to and fro in all directions... Um, wondering whether it was really feminist, or post-feminist, or anti-feminist, or just in some baffling way, French. Um, In The Guardian, Peter Bradshaw went for provocative, and I think... We can have the slide now. There we are. I think that's the sort of moment that he had in mind when he called it provocative. (laughs) Um, And then he threw the critical kitchen sink at it and decided that it was a startlingly strange rape-revenge black comedy. I didn't myself think it was as strange as all that. I certainly thought that it was a comedy. But what really struck me was that every woman I knew who'd seen it didn't get involved with those questions. All they said was, the clothes. They're fantastic. One friend actually grabbed me by the wrist. I said, it's amazing, the clothes. And I felt rather the same. Um, absolutely amazing. But when you look at them, so I thought I would go back and look at them. Actually, they're not amazing. They're very much the sort of epitome of understated French ready-to-wear chic. So I thought, if it isn't clothes that create the effect, and nor is it the actor. I mean, Isabella Pérez is a great actor, but it wasn't quite that. It was some compound of the two that created this character, this presence, this entity that could walk the tightrope that carries the film over that fire pit of sexual violence and questions about women's agency. Um, there are, of course, lots of much less extreme examples in real life where women dressed create a particular effect which is not principally and not a, or not at all about attracting men, though men often think that it is. There is, for for example, the iron rule that north of Derby, no woman on a night out will wear tights. (laughs) Why? I shall come down to that. Other questions. How did Liz Hurley launch an entire career by wearing one dress, which was actually much less extreme than a lot of the things that Gianni Versace has put on the catwalks of Milan? And then what happens when it goes wrong? Did Diana overdo it on Panorama? And why do Melania and Ivanka look more gothic than Catholic? (laughs) And at what point do we draw a line between dress and costume, between life and art? Edith Sitwell, as a child, was made to feel very self-conscious about her appearance. And as an adult, she decided that everyone else should be conscious of it too. Um, And this was dress, if you like, as the performance of personality. It is a kind of work of art. So all these various thoughts about women and their clothes, how they wear them, and also how they write about them, led me to Virginia Woolf and the term that she coined, frock consciousness. At the beginning of her diary for 1925, she wrote on January the 6th, I want to begin to describe my own sex. And that thought recurs as the diary goes on through the months, and it's cast increasingly in terms of clothes. My love of clothes interests me profoundly, she wrote, only it's not love and what it is I must discover. 1925 was the year that Wolfe published Mrs. Dalloway, which brought her to literary prominence, and it was the year after. In the January, it was only a few weeks since she had sat for the first time for her photograph in vogue. And for that Sitting, she chose to wear a dress that had belonged to her mother. I believe it was her mother's wedding dress, I'm not sure, but anyway, it had belonged to her mother. So it was far too big for her and it was very much out of fashion. And to plant it in the most famous fashion magazine in Europe was to make a considered, if ambiguous, statement. And the experience of the sitting for the photograph prompted a further thought. My present reflection is that people have any number of states of consciousness, she writes, and I should like to investigate the party consciousness, the frock consciousness, etc. These states are very difficult. I'm always coming back to it. Still, I cannot get at what I mean. Well, I don't suppose I'm going to get at it either, but what I thought I would do is turn the question over again with the advantage of almost a century of hindsight because um, the moment... I don't think that the the, the idea of frock consciousness was born when Virginia Woolf started to write about it, but it was much heightened in that period between the two world wars when Woolf was trying to put her finger on it. And if human character did, as she famously suggested, change in or about 1910, women's clothes changed very soon after. Um, Another product of 1925 was the woman's pullover, Not today the most exciting item in anyone's wardrobe, but it was in its way revolutionary. A pullover, bear with me, is pulled over the head, both on and off, and the person who does the pulling is the wearer. Yes. But until that point, it had been for over a century almost impossible for a woman to get dressed or undressed by herself. The rich had ladies' maids, the poor had each other, but the laces and hooks and eyes and the fastening behind required assistance. And this was not true for men. And in that convention that women's clothes have buttons on the left for the convenience of the average right-handed dresser, while men's have them on the right to suit themselves, it is, if you like, an archaeological trace, a fossil record, of the different history of women and men in their relation to their clothes. Fashion writers who are, as we know, apt to discuss new trends with the urgency of war reporters on a particularly dangerous front line and to misuse the word iconic relentlessly, um, but I think they can be forgiven for their hero worship of the Italian couturier um, Elsa Scaparelli and this, her cravat pullover, because it does stand for a new age in women's clothes. Not only can you get in and out of it all by yourself, but those fiddly bits, the bows and the ribbons, have been knitted into one piece. Scaparelli was a surrealist. She worked with Dali. And what she did here was to make a very wearable satire on the idea of female dress. Well, among the other events of 1925 was the Paris Exposition des Arts Décoratifs, from which the phase Art Deco was coined, rather later. Um, Art Deco is a style that favors angles and shadows, faceted planes, machine-turned, bevel-edged furniture, and teapots by Clarice Cliff on the slant. It's a style in which the machine age meets the jazz age. Um, and it was perhaps the only period in which women who looked like Scaparelli and Wallace Simpson with their rather hefty, faceted, dynamic profiles could have been leaders of fashion. And women between the wars were prominent in the world of haute couture, as well as Schapp as she became known, there was Coco Chanel, there was Jeanne Lovain, and Scaparelli's sporty, dress-yourself look was tailored, literally, I suppose, to women of action. Amy Johnson, who flew solo to Australia, was one, and in a rather different vein, Mae West, in Every Day is a Holiday. Um, West, whose billowing curves billowed a little more at each fitting, um, much to the annoyance of Scaparelli, who's quite short-tempered and very thin. Um, you might think, and what she's wearing by Scaparelli here is this huge um, collared cape thing. Um, and she is, in a way, with all these bellowing curves, the antithesis of the deco style, but she was straining at limits of more than Scaparelli seems. She challenged the censors, she challenged the film studios, she talked about sex, in ways that women in general were not supposed to do, and she took control of her films and her image in a way that actresses in particular were not supposed to do. But the ambitions of these women and the claims to effectiveness are not, I think, just reflected in the clothes that Schiaparelli made for them. They are also, to some extent, created by them, because neither of these women were in themselves what Shap's designs made them. Amy Johnson was unhappily married to a classic 1930s cad and also on her famous flight to Brisbane in 1930, her de Havilland gypsy moth touched down in the words of her biographer, too fast and too late. She landed upside down in front of an excited crowd of 20,000 um, and presumably not looking quite like that. West who wrote, West wrote a lot of the script for Every Day is a Holiday, and she took credit for all of it. But she bowed in the end to the censors, as a result of which the best jokes had to be taken out, and the film flopped. So, not quite what the clothes made them. Well, of course, clothes, for anyone who can afford to choose their own clothes freely, have always been, to some extent, an expression of people's personality of their status their character and their taste but i do think that it was in that popular modernism of the interwar years when so many men had died and women had so much more uh, room to maneuver if you like in society that that particular compound of woman plus clothes what woolf calls frock consciousness became a significant aspect of female experience it became a colour on the writer's palette it became a possible agent in a narrative. Um, and it's about that time that frocks, and other garments, but frocks particularly, begin to enter fiction as more than accessories, when frock consciousness breaks the surface of public awareness and comes out in literature. But nothing happens all at once. Human character didn't really change in 1910. And I think looking back, there are two quite significant lines of literary dissent. On the one hand is Jane Austen, who certainly cared about clothes. She talks about them in her letters. But she's interestingly uninterested in them in her novels. And more than that, actually, she's positively hostile. Women who talk about clothes mark themselves out as stupid or vulgar or malicious. In Mansfield Park, the culpably inert Lady Bertram is a woman who spent her days sitting nicely dressed on a sofa. Mrs. Elton in Emma condemns herself when she asks Jane Fairfax's opinion as to whether she should put this or that particular trim on her white and silver poplin. After that kind of remark, we hardly need to be told that she is self-important, presuming, familiar, ignorant and (laughs) ill-bred. And in the very last paragraph of the novel, where I think you generally feel Mrs Elton should have been consigned to the past, she's allowed to linger in the wings just to point up the moral superiority in every way of Emma and Mr. Knightley, in her own disappointment that their wedding was in such restrained good taste, very inferior to her own, with very little white satin, very few lace veils, a most pitiful business. Um, And the closest, I think, that Jane Austen comes to talking directly about anything that could be called frock consciousness is in Northanger Abbey, where she offers a very rare direct comment on dress, but, of course, that novel is a parody. And so the remark is ironic, ironic as defined by Christopher Ricks in that it is both true and not true to the same extent at the same time. Woman, she writes, woman is fine for her satisfaction alone. No man will admire her the more. No woman will like her the better for it. And in parody, of course, the text works by being read in the reflected light of another text which is known but unseen and satire bounces back and forth between the two in a kind of comic hall of mirrors and that is where jane austen leaves the woman who wants to be fine but whose finery can't get her anywhere she's left with nothing but her own reflection And that unspoken question about why women mind about their clothes, as Jane Austen herself did, when they know that the effect on other people is often at best negligible and at worst deleterious, that conundrum of who women dress for has never gone away. Um, Today, the correct answer is that we dress for ourselves. But that isn't really it either, because if you dress to say something about yourself, the question is, to whom are your remarks addressed? they can often and often are are misinterpreted by men who think or pretend to think that it is for them. And at the worst, you arrive at a woman who goes out looking like that, is asking for it. The effect on other people, though, is only one end of an arc, if you like, the point where the idea comes to earth in the outside world. The other end, the spring of the vault, is in the interior world of the wearer. And it's somewhere between the two, I would suggest, that frock consciousness occurs. So the other line of descent from the 19th century begins with Jane Eyre. Charlotte Bronte famously objected to, to Jane Austen and objected to her Chinese fidelity to the outside external world of the real and the material and to the smooth elegance of her narrative. Um, however partial and inadequate that is as a view of Jane Austen as a whole, it is certainly true that she views dress entirely in material terms and from the outside. Charlotte Bronte didn't, and I think it's in Jane Eyre that frock consciousness springs fully formed into English literature as a bearer of narrative and of emotional force. On the night before her wedding when Jane has her luggage all ready for the honeymoon and the trunks are packed and corded, something stops her from attaching the labels which are all made out in the name of Mrs. Rochester. Mrs. Rochester, she did not exist. She would not be born till tomorrow, sometime after 8 o'clock a.m., and I would wait to be assured that she had come into the world alive before I assigned to her all that property. It was enough that in yonder closet... Opposite my dressing table, garments said to be hers had already displaced my black stuff low-wood frock and straw bonnet, for not to me appertained that suit of wedding raiment, the pearl-coloured robe, the vapoury veil pendant from the usurped portmanteau. I shut the closet to conceal the strange wraith-like apparel it contained, which, at this evening hour, nine o'clock, gave out certainly a most ghostly shimmer, through the shadow of my apartment. What hangs in the closet is a creature of limbo, both unborn and undead. It may be a chrysalis, it may be a shroud. Importantly, it exists outside the narrative time. And the white ghost, of course, in the novel is then followed by the black ghost, the dream by the nightmare, in the form of the actual Mrs. Rochester, tall and large, with thick and dark hair, hanging long down her back, whose own state of existence is similarly indeterminate. I know not what dress she had on, it was white and straight, but whether gown, sheet or shroud, I cannot tell. And Bertha Rochester fingers the wedding dress and then she takes the veil and tears it. An action that um, post-Freudian critics have always seen in terms of sexual symbolism, which I think completely misses the point. I think that dress is not a metaphor, it's a dress. And it's doing what a dress can do, acting as a membrane through which an identity, in this case the identity of Mrs. Rochester, can pass. And this, at its most extreme, you might say, is not so much frock consciousness as a conscious frock. It comes between one state of existence and another, as clothes themselves come between the naked self and the world. But it's also permeable, it's a channel of communication a semi-permeable membrane like the skin of an amphibian. And women have always had to be amphibious. No society has been designed expressly for their comfort or convenience. And as they move between the elements, between the spheres of private and public and personal and professional, they have to be constantly adapting, assuming a disguise or a camouflage. Not surprisingly, perhaps, the conscious frock in fiction is often seen in midair, thrown from a New York skyscraper in Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar, or drifting, interestingly, sometimes on fire through the fables of Angela Carter. So, meanwhile, back in 1925, on the morning of her party, Clarissa Dalloway is mending a tear in her green dress. It's a favorite dress, would be anybody's favorite dress because it is both distinctive and yet suitable. It's one of those little out-of-the-way things that Mrs. Dalloway's dressmaker, Sally Parker, could create, and yet at the same time not queer. The thing about Sally's designs is that you could wear them at Hatfield, at Buckingham Palace. She had worn them at Hatfield, at Buckingham Palace. Her clothes suit her character, and at the same time they make her a suitable character, on the stage of high society. And that's what a lot of women, I think, want from their clothes, to stand out and to fit in to the same degree at the same time. And as Clarissa Dalloway sews and she contemplates the dress, a great sense of peace comes over her and the waves of the green silk become like waves of the sea in summer until the whole world seemed to be saying, that is all, fear no more, says the heart, committing its burden to the sea. And soothed by the dress and by the self that it represents, Clarissa Dalloway's consciousness seems to pass into the green folds so that when she's interrupted, she suddenly hears somebody at the door, she made to hide her dress like a virgin protecting chastity. And that reflexive action, I think, suggests to the extent to which the frock has become her most private and naked being for that moment. But The Conscious Frock is not always serious. There is great comic potential in clothes. And Wolfe's contemporary and acquaintance, Elizabeth Dashwood, they didn't know each other well, but um, they, they met. Um, Elizabeth Dashwood wrote under the name of Ian e. Delafield in Lady Ronda's feminist magazine, Time and Tide. And um, from 1930, she wrote a column called The Diary of a Provincial Lady. And it was very popular, I still think it's wonderful. I still think she's underrated. Um, It's written in in a persona that is set at a rather finely judged angle to her own life and character. As a woman living in the country, married to a land agent, who takes every opportunity to linger on the outskirts of literary London, struggling at times to keep her end up in the conversation. In November, she writes, the provincial lady writes, I'm asked what I think of Harriet Hume by Rebecca West, but I am unable to say, as I have not read it. Have a depressed feeling that this is going to be another case of Orlando, about which was perfectly able to talk most intelligently until I read it and found myself, unfortunately, unable to understand any of it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And Delafield portrays her permanently discomforted author at successive daunting social occasions for which she wears either my black or my blue, neither of which is ever quite right. And interestingly, when the people she encounters are often identified or indeed misidentified by their clothes, the creton smock, who is um, promulgating a sort of Montessori way of uh, educating children, is making the provincial lady feel very uncomfortable about her own child-rearing skills. And at a dinner for the author of a novel called Symphony in Three Sexes, of which she has never previously heard, A provincial lady decides, because she just doesn't know who the author is or what it's about or anything, she decides that it must be the woman in the blue tapestry dress. And so she strikes up a conversation, only to discover later that blue tapestry is in fact a sanitary inspector and the author was a man. (laughs) Um, And in both Wolfe and Delafield, there are reflections of changes that were taking place for real provincial ladies in the interwar years, From actually from the working class to some extent, but even from the lower middle class upwards in terms of income, in their relationship with clothes. There were new fabrics, there were new colours and dyes, there were new garments that made dressing and undressing yourself uh, even easier. In 1917, Gideon Sandback patented the separable fastener, which became known after 1923 as the zipper and in Britain as the zip. And it started off uh, with the military, but it soon migrated to footwear, so you could do away with your button hooks, which were particularly difficult if you were corseted, doing up your, um, your button boots. Um, and then in 1930, the 1930s, of course, the zip arrived in clothes. And also liberating in its way was the department store. Department stores had, of course, existed since the 19th century, but it was in the 20th century that they really blossomed, Selfridges opened in 1909, but by the 1920s it looked like a cross between the British Museum and Mae West's bathroom. (laughs) And between the wars, these Grand Magasins as they were known, became a striking architectural presence in London, in Stuttgart, in Budapest, in Paris. And I think you could say that the department store was really the Art Deco building type. La Samaritaine got its uh, famous extension at this time, as did Le Bon Marché, and in Germany, modernism, futurism really, overtook the modern with Eric Mendelssohn's designs for stores for the Stocken Company. Admittedly, Marshall and Snellgrove in Oxford Street was not ever quite in this league. By October the 11th, 1928, it had been taken over by Debenhams, but that was the day that Orlando, in her last manifestation, visited it. A.M. Um, Delafield enjoyed teasing Virginia Woolf about Orlando, but she had no real trouble understanding it. And nor would her provincial lady have been, I think, at a loss to know why, after traveling through so many centuries, Orlando should arrive in a department store. As Orlando comes in from the hectic hurly-burly of Oxford Street, the essence of department store joy comes over her. Shade and scent enveloped her. The present fell from her like drops of scalding water. And as she rises up through the floors, traveling now vertically through space as she has traveled through time, each time the lift stopped and flung its doors open, there was another slice of the world displayed with the smells of the world clinging to it. That would be the sort of thing she would be seeing. Well, the department store is in decline these days, but I think it's still possible in Harvey Nichols or Fenix, perhaps, to get that luxuriating sense of peace and freedom if you like those shops. I like them for the same reasons that some women, and I think a lot of men, dislike them. There are very rarely any windows to the outside. You navigate by departments and designers. And the busy world is hushed, and it's all tissue paper, and the promise of lives embodied in perfect clothes, which, however unsuitable or unaffordable in reality, seem briefly possible in the flattering light in the changing room. The department store between the wars was also a corner of the world that was unusually laid out for the convenience of women and for their comfort. The business of Marshall and Snellgrove was to create an environment in which women without male companions could linger. And there were not so many places in the 1920s and 30s. Clubs were mostly for men. Those that were for women tended to be rather austere. And a woman or women unaccompanied would not be served in any respectable bar. In the department store, there was a restaurant or a cafe, There was also, extremely importantly, a ladies' lavatory. And you could spend all day there. You could meet a friend. You could buy what you wanted or buy nothing. And provincial ladies did not have to come to London. Marshall and Snellgrove had branches in the resorts and the industrial cities of the north, had branches in Scarborough and Leeds. And Liverpool, Britain's greatest seaport, had its very own bon marché, named after Boussicot's Paris store, although in the case of Liverpool, it was actually owned by a Welshman called David Lewis. Between 1920 and 24, as happened in so many places, the Bon Marché in Liverpool was given an Art Deco makeover and came to be regarded at the time as one of the finest examples of modern architecture that Liverpool possesses. There were also Owen Owen and Lewis's, heavy Welsh presence in the department stores of Liverpool, um, which catered for customers of the middle and working classes. And in Bold Street, the Bond Street of the North, there were some more uh, exclusive establishments. Well, about one patron of the Liverpool women's clothes shops, a woman who was neither famous nor fictional, we know a great deal, and we know it almost entirely through her clothes. Emily Tin was born Emily Margaret McCulloch. She was born in India in 1886, her family minor players in the Raj. Her father was a Presbyterian minister, at Chinsura in West Bengal, and Emily was sent to boarding school in England, after which she trained as a domestic science teacher and took her first job teaching at the Liverpool Training School of Cookery and Technical College of Domestic Science. And in 1910 at Toxteth, she married Philip Tyn, a local GP who'd been born in British Guyana and educated at Eton and at Magdalen, Oxford. So the the Tyns were a trading family. They had made a substantial trading family who had made and lost money from time to time in shipping and sugar. And Emily Philip and Philip belonged to the solid Liverpudlian bourgeoisie, um, the Tins would not have considered themselves in any pejorative sense provincial. The doors of Liverpool's St George's Hall bear the letters SPQL, Sonatus Populusque Liverpudliensis. <laughs> Liverpool looked for its peers not to London, but to ancient Rome. And so, in that interesting year, 1925, when so much was going on, Dr. Tin. Emily's husband, inherited his share of the family fortune. And from then onwards, the Tins lived in somewhat higher style. When Emily Tyn died in 1961, her daughter, Alexin, Alexin was the one who had never married um, and had stayed at home and lived with her mother for the rest of her mother's life. Uh, Alexin began to clear the house. It took her 40 years to go through all her mother's clothes. I may imagine she did other things, but it took a very long time. Um, and between 1966 and 2003, she donated more than 700 items to the National Museums of Liverpool, as well as a collection of fashion magazines. And this is now the Walker Art Gallery's Tin Collection. It was the subject of an exhibition curated by Pauline Rushton in 2006 called Mrs. Tin's Wardrobe. So... In 1925, on the morning of Clarissa Dalloway's party, if Mrs. Tinn was shopping, and it's a fair bet that she was, she would have been in Bold Street while Mrs. Dalloway was in Bond Street. And it would certainly be about then that she bought the Art Deco um, afternoon dress, which you see on the left-hand side, in wool crepe. And if she had gone to the party in the evening, we might imagine her in something like this on the right? In silk crepe and rayon jersey. Rayon jersey, another one of those new and relatively easy-care fabrics. And as you can see from the detail, with the glass beads and uh, the clear glass and the silver beads, it's absolutely the last word in our deco. From the Liverpool Museum's point of view, the collection is a wonderful historical resource. Um, They like the fact that it includes some very early examples of bras, which I won't bother you with because they're not actually very interesting, um, except historically. Um, And as Rushton puts it, in the tin collection, one can see a broad range of clothes worn by one person every day and over a long period of time. Well, I'm not sure that's exactly right. The mixture is certainly there. We start in 1910 with the swimsuit that Emily bought for her honeymoon. And it goes on fairly steadily up until uh, 1939, when World War II put a stop, temporarily at least, to Mrs. Tenn's shopping. Um, it is a biography in clothes. It is a period study, because there are types of garments that no longer exist, because they which mark punctuation points in a kind of life that no longer exists. The bridge coat the motoring bonnet, which has this elaborate built-in hairnet so that you don't get your hairdo um, ruined as the wind goes through it, um, the dinner dress and matching cotee, cotee, a word we don't have anymore. Um, but many of these clothes have either hardly or never been worn. Some of them actually still have the price tags on. Rushton wonders whether Emily Tin felt a philanthropic desire to support the shop girls of Liverpool who worked on commission. Or she suggests that Mrs. Tin was just a compulsive shopper of the sort who are apparently so fascinating to viewers of Channel 5. (laughs) Um, Possibly, and there were certainly times when she resorted to the familiar practice of buying a size too small in the hope of losing weight. When she didn't lose weight, however, she was not discouraged, and among the fashion magazines to which she subscribed, which the museum now has a complete run of, were titles that would never do today. One was Smart Fashions for Outsizes, and the other was Smart Fashions for Wider Hips. <laughs> While Pauline Rushton was cataloguing the collection, she talked to alexen from whom she got some interestingly contradictory information. The survival of numerous dinner gowns or similar evening dresses, Rushton writes, indicates that the tins must have dressed for dinner at least some of the time, although Alexin Tin does not recall this having been the case. And further on, she writes, some of the later garments are too grand for dinner at home. They must surely have been worn on some other more formal occasion, such as a party or an official function. Yet, she adds... Alexyn does not recall her parents socializing regularly. On the contrary, in fact, Dr. Tyn, who was a very conscientious GP, made a point of holding an evening surgery every day. And the only occasions that Rushton can be reasonably sure that the Tins attended were receptions at the Liverpool Medical Institute. And I feel that however smart the Medical Institute was, it could hardly have justified quite such an outlay on evening wear. And as Rushton and Alexin continue their conversation, an even odder picture emerges, because in comparison contrast to this great array of clothes and hats, we'll come to hats later, there are hardly any shoes. Those that are in the collection are mostly quite stout, sensible shoes, and they've obviously been worn. Neither are there many handbags. Alexin explains that her mother wasn't so interested in shoes and bags, but she couldn't have gone out in any of these clothes without shoes, and surely you wouldn't go to the sort of event that required this kind of dress without suitable accessories. So the figure that emerges from Mrs. Tin's wardrobe is eerily like the mannequins on which the museum shows the clothes. Footless, limp arms, empty-handed, and hovering above where the head might be, a wonderful hat, which we'll come to later. No feet, no face, no baggage. Well, I don't know, but I suspect that what we're watching is a manifestation like ectoplasm of an actual frock consciousness, of a life lived out in clothes, some worn, many not, of evenings while her husband held his surgery, spent in the imagination at soirees like Mrs. Dalloway's, in a state of mind like Clarissa's as she mends her dress, half in and half out of the material world. Well, I can't be sure if that's what Emily Tinn did. Um, But I I do believe that this is the closest we'll come probably to a case study of the state of mind that Virginia Woolf describes in her diary when she's talking about this kind of thing and what she feels about clothes. She writes, happiness is to have a little string onto which things attach themselves. For example, going to my dressmaker in Judd Street, or, or rather thinking of a dress I could get her to make and imagining it made, That is the string which, as if dipped loosely into a wave of treasure, brings up pearls sticking to it. Well, while Emily Tinn was shopping in Liverpool, um, that's the last of her dresses that I wanted to show you, just because I think it's fabulous. Um, While Emily Tinn was shopping in Liverpool, up in Edinburgh, her almost exact contemporary, they were about a year apart, Sissy Camberg, was buying hats. Now, I told you we'd come to hats. In the 1920s, in the respectable but chilly and soot-stained Scottish capital, the hat of choice, or at least the hat of convention, was the pot-shaped cloche. And Mrs. Tin naturally had several. Um, and, in fact, that one that you're looking at here is considerably more glamorous than most cloches which were felt um, and slightly sort of molten and pot-shaped. And Mrs. Camburg didn't care for them. She favoured another kind of hat, as her daughter Muriel Spark recalled. These hats were quite different. They were large, wavy-brimmed, shady and bedecked. These hats were utterly impossible, Spark wrote, outside of ascot races and possibly the summer opening of London's Royal Academy, 400 miles and many, many more hundreds of cultural distances from our puritanical Scottish capital. But my mother could not resist them. And when questioned by her daughter about this expensive hat habit, and um, Muriel Spark adds that she could never pass a hat shop, particularly if the milliner gave her cash credit. Um, Muriel Spark, like Alex and Tim, does not recall any such occasions in her mother's life until when Muriel Spark was living in southern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe as it is now. She got a letter from her mother announcing that she had at last been invited to an Edinburgh garden party in aid of um, a Jewish benefit charity. Knowing that letters took two weeks at that time to reach Scotland, Muriel hastened to the desk, writing back as quickly as possible to warn Sissy. But it was too late. Her mother appeared at the garden party in one of her glorious hats to find herself a gazelle among dung beetles under a leaden Scottish sky. It was very dreary, she wrote to her daughter. They were all wearing tweed. (laughs) Spark was remembering her mother in 2002 in an essay called The Celestial Garden Party, and she concludes that there are some clothes that should be bought because they're so attractive, so irresistible in the shop, but they should never be worn or used, Um, perhaps. I think when the arc from The Interior Life to the outside world, is really, is constructed too broadly to take the load, that is perhaps good advice. The shock, as the private self collides with the public one, the carefully arranged reflection in the mirror at home becomes the overlit snapshot on Facebook, can be shattering. Spark herself, of course, is a mistress of frock consciousness. In The Girls of Slender Means, which I think it's really her masterpiece. It's set at the end of the Second World War in a hostel for girls of slender means called the May of Tech. And the girls in the hostel have a dress that they share between them, a dress which by now you will not be surprised to know was designed by Scaparelli. Obviously not this one, but that's the idea. It's made of taffeta, and it is dark blue, green, orange, and white in a floral pattern. Strictly speaking, the dress belongs to one of the girls, Anne Babbington, and it was given to her by a fabulously rich aunt. But perhaps more than any dress since Jane Ayers, it exists as an independent consciousness in the narrative. Anne lends it to those of the other girls who can fit into it when they have an important date. But the dress has a social life of its own. You can't wear it to the Milroy. It's been twice to the Milroy. <laughs> It's been to Quaglino's. Selena wore it to Quags. It's getting known all over London. <laughs> the dress is the girl's collective unconscious. As such, it fascinates Nicholas Farringdon, who is one of the young men who goes out with several of the girls. By the time Spark starts the story... We know that Nicholas suddenly gave up his civil service job, had some kind of epiphany, took holy orders, and has been murdered and, it is implied, possibly eaten in Haiti. <laughs> by the time it ends, what we have learned is how he came by his vocation, which is that an unexploded bomb in the, gar- in the garden of the Mayotte Hostel suddenly um, exploded and sets fire to the hostel, and the girls are trapped on the top floor, where the only way out is through the narrow lavatory window. And they've been used to going in and out through this window to get onto the roof in order either to sunbathe or to have sex. And so they know that in order to get through it, you have to have hips that measure less than 36 and a half inches. They are slender girls of slender means. And the beautiful Selena, of course, has no difficulty getting out. Um, but as the building collapses, she seen to go back in and to emerge again through the smoke, carrying something fairly long and limp that Farringdon at first thinks is a body, but the head and, sh- like Mrs. Tyn, the head and shoulders are a coat hanger. Selina passes him with the Scaparelli dress and vanishes. And in his notes found after his death in Haiti, Farringdon has written about his epiphany that a vision of evil may be as effective to conversion as a vision of good. So the ending is very ambiguous, I think, as very much as Virginia Woolf's choice of her mother's dress for the sitting in vogue was ambiguous. Selina is perhaps the angel of death. Something certainly dies at the end of the book, a moment in history, an association of women who have long since gone their separate ways, but who were, for a moment, one spirit, Spark published The Girls of Slender Means in 1963, the same year that Sylvia Plath published The Bell Jar, which is a largely autobiographical novel permeated with frock consciousness. The protagonist, um, Esther Greenwood, has come to New York on this dream job on Mademoiselle magazine, but she has a breakdown. The dream becomes a nightmare, and she throws all these wonderful new clothes away. A strapless elasticized slip which in the course of wear had lost its elasticity slumped into my hand. I waved it like a flag of truce. Piece by piece I fed my wardrobe to the night wind like a loved one's ashes. Um, And it's another description like Angela Carter with the dresses on fire like Muriel Spark with the smoke and ashes um, permeated with fire. In real life, her own life, Plath continued to wear the same shirt, waist, dresses, and the hats and gloves that Mademoiselle and its readers favoured. And Ruth Fainlight remarked that Plath reminded her of one of my New York aunts dressed for a cocktail party. And Fainlight suggests that what this, what this indicated about Plath was that she was always trying to fit into a role that she couldn't really play. But I think that that is a bit too simple, because there was something in those clothes that was her. It was truly herself. She wasn't only the cremator. She is also the loved one whose ashes are cast away in the wind. And the extent to which Plath's self is um, widely understood to be embodied in clothes is suggested, I think, by the catalogue for Bonham's sale on March the 21st, from which you see two of the lot's. With 1963, I think you get to the end of what you can reasonably describe as post-war writing, and so I am coming to the end of my lecture, at which point I cannot help noticing that in my synopsis, which was written like all synopses before I had any idea what I was going to say, um, I implied that I would answer a question. Is frock consciousness a reflection of women's comparatively limited scope for direct action in the world, which is what Simone de Beauvoir says? Or is it a positive quality? Is it an extra sense, another string to the bow? And I also noticed that I haven't answered that question. I haven't put my finger on frock consciousness any more than Virginia Woolf did, though I have tried to give it some historical and literary context and to suggest why the interwar decades are a particularly good place to look at it in literature and in life. But nor have I resolved its essence or the impenetrable and enduring mystery of why tights stop at Derby. <laughs> Thank you. If you subscribe to the LRB, you can save up to seventy-five percent on the cover price. Visit lrb.co.uk/slash subscribe, or you can unlock our entire online archive for free for twenty-four hours visit lrb.co.uk forward slash open.